So I was thinking how this Sunday is the first Sunday of the new year, and many of you make New Year's resolutions. Uh, how many of you have already failed your New Year's resolutions? You don't have to answer that, by the way. So like, that's, that's why I don't make any, because I can't fail them. If you don't make them, you can't fail them. But, but I was thinking how I wanted to show a video, but I didn't, because it was kind of making fun of people at some level, and so I didn't show up. But it was this video of people going to the gym on New Year's Day, and it was a guy kind of mocking it, how people don't go all year, and they show up for like the first two weeks of the year, and then it was this montage of people using every exercise equipment in the wrong way. Um, probably some of those people were hurt when they were done, but it was funny, and so if you want to look it up, I'm sure you can find it online somewhere. But I was thinking how, how we want to do new things or become new people, but what if the easiest way to become something new in our lives was actually to go backward? What if looking behind us helped us go forward? And that sounds counterintuitive in much of life, but what if... That was true for us this year. In fact, we're, we're looking backward at the Gospel of John this week and looking at the whole year. In fact, uh, we think it's important enough that we have these available in the, uh, in the, in the foyer out there. Uh, you can pick them up if you want. Um, but it's just because if you're like me, I don't like to write in my Bible. It feels weird to do that. Some of you do it, and it's great. I have no issue with it. I just can't. So we bought books because, you know, like, why not buy another book? Um, but you can write in this, and it actually has lines for you to write in it. So maybe this will be the only book you read this year. Um, if that's the case, great. But they're available in there if you want one as we continue to go through this book this year. would love for you to, to bring a Bible every week or bring this book or both. And so seeing how John, and the reason we're spending time in the Gospel of John, is because John is the one who probably knew, of all the Gospel writers, knew Jesus the best. He's the one who said about himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John writes this book with kind of this belief and this idea that Jesus changes everything. And he so believed that Jesus was something that was so true and so life-changing that he wrote a book about it. He was all in. And so I was thinking, what does it mean for us to be like a fan of something to some great extent? And so I have to be honest with you, I really do love Chick-fil-A. And some of you are like, yeah, we know, we've heard before. But here, bear with me. I don't know how you don't like the delicious waffle fries. Or Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich, the lightly breaded chicken on a multi-grain bun with no pickle. Add lettuce and tomato and some barbecue sauce. It's great. Um, so I'm a fan of Chick-fil-A, but I'm also a fan, honestly of Kathy Truett, the founder of Chick-fil-A, and here's why. So two stories I love about Kathy Truett are, are one, in the mid-90s, Chick-fil-A, their primary competition was Boston Market at the time. And Boston Market, by the way, uh, the last one in Holland just closed recently, so like, sorry, if you want to go to Boston Market, you can't find them. And here's maybe why. So in the mid-90s, Boston Market came out with this great campaign that they were going to hit a billion dollars in sales, and they were going to open over a thousand stores by the year 2000. So Chick-fil-A is nervous, and so in their corporate headquarters there in Atlanta, and they're having this big meeting with all the executives, and, and Kathy Church is kind of a quiet guy, but he finally had enough of listening to all the arguing around the table, and he slammed his fist on the table a couple times to get everyone's attention, and they all stopped, and they looked at him. And he says, you keep talking about getting bigger. What if we just worried about getting better? You keep talking about getting bigger and bigger. What if we just got better, and I think bigger will take care of itself if we just get better at what we do? He says, there's a way we do stuff, and that's not the way we do it, and so we're going to stick with what we do. We're not going to take out loans. We're not going to do this. A whole bunch of other things they were not going to do. Year 2000 comes, Chick-fil-A passes like $2 billion in sales, opens another 1,000 stores, Boston Market files for bankruptcy. Huh, cool story. Not even the coolest Kathy Truett story. Coolest story, one I love, and there might be more. I just don't know them. Was he was at church one Sunday, and uh, he knew there was a guy in his church who 
had four kids and worked really hard, but just didn't really have much, didn't have much money, knew it was tough to pay the bills, all those kind of things, um, and, and it was just hard. And so Kathy knew this story, knew who he was. I think he might have even been a Sunday school teacher. Don't quote me on that part. But, but either way, his son tells the story that one Sunday after church, Kathy Truett stopped him in the parking lot and says, hey, can I see your house keys? And he's like, it's a weird request, but whatever, I don't care. So he gets out his house keys, and Kathy Truett says, here, let's trade. And he gives him his house. So here, this family that couldn't afford much all of a sudden had a house on a pond that was paid for, and it was theirs. Pretty cool story, right? True story. In fact, that guy who was one of the kids that lived in that house now is an owner-operator of Chick-fil-A, and part of why is because of Kathy Truett. We talked about the story, so we never know, right? So I'm a fan of Chick-fil-A, but I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to be a follower, an apprentice, someone who lives their life in such a way that over time I begin to look and sound and act like Jesus. I'm a far cry from it right now, by the way, but I'm hoping by the grace of God for him to continue to transform me so that I do look and sound much more like him. And this is why John writes this gospel, this book, so that you and I can know who Jesus is how he impacted John's life, and how he can change our lives. In fact, if you were to go to chapter 20 in the Gospel of John, these two verses, we'll be back to chapter 1 in just a moment, but, but these two verses summarize why John wrote this entire book. In fact, here's what he writes in his own words. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why John wrote this book, so that you and I could come to know life in the person of Jesus, because somehow Jesus is the one who has come to set the world right, to take all that is broken and to redeem and to restore and make new. And so John says this, if you'll come to know him, you'll come to know life that you never knew was possible. And the words he says in other spots are life that leads to life. What would it look like for you and I to enter into that place, to come to know that kind of true life? This is why John wrote this book. In fact, here's how he begins the book. So if we go back to the beginning, to go forward, here's what John writes in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, 
gospel of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him now, I want to erase any confusion you may have today. Um, John is the gospel writer of John. He wrote John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in your Bibles. But he's talking about a different John. We call him John the Baptist. By the way, I wish there were more names from John. I went to a basketball game the other day, and um, there were like three Izzy's in the game. They kept saying Izzy's in for Izzy. I'm like, I'm so confused about which Izzy's playing. But that's a whole different conversation, right? John is all over the Bible. So apparently it's a popular name in that day and age, just like there are other popular names in our day. I think it was Heather when I was in high school. There were like a million Heathers. I don't know what it is now, right? So there's always a name that seems to be a popular name. But John is writing about Jesus and about John the Baptist. And here's what he writes. And these words might be some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. And maybe you're like, well, I, what? What does he mean by the word? And why is this capitalized? Well, here's the word. Uh, in our language, it looks like a word that would be logos, like logos, but it's actually logos, and it's a Greek word. And here's what this Greek word means. It means truth or divinity or the reason of God. It's this idea that the logos pervades all things. This is the Greek idea that there was this kind of divine thing that existed. And so what John is doing is saying this. That thing that you think pervades all things and is all places, this truth, this reason of God, this divine thing, let me tell you what it actually is. It has always existed. It's got a name, and that name is Jesus. In fact, from him all things were made. If you were to go back in all the places where it says the word in John chapter 1, and you just wrote Jesus in there, that would be applicable be the same kind of idea. So in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God. And so what John is trying to get us to understand is this, that everything stems from him. What he is saying here is pretty radical. He is declaring that Jesus is God. And what that then means for us is this, that we can say nothing about God that we cannot say about Jesus. We're going to talk in a few moments about all the ways we get pictures of God wrong, but what What John is trying to say is this, you can't talk about God if you can't say the same thing about Jesus. If I were to say this differently, here's maybe a helpful way to phrase, right? If you've got your little journal thing and you're going to write a note, this is a good note to write. John paints a picture of Jesus. Jesus paints a picture of who God is. John paints a picture of who Jesus is. Jesus paints for us a picture of who God is. Is And I'll come back to that line in just a few moments. But maybe you're thinking, as you heard these words in John chapter 1, if you've been as someone who's read the Bible before or parts of it before, maybe something jumped out to you. And maybe you thought about a section what we call the Old Testament and from the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 1. It also begins in the beginning. You're like, oh, John, he's making a connection to Genesis. I get it. Smart guy. He's making this connection. I can only imagine, right, if you were going to write about a guy who changed your life and how much he meant to you, 
I can imagine how you started your book and thought about that would be so important. And so what he does is he connects the in the beginning to the in the beginning. And here's what we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, now, we know a couple things just from these first couple verses. We know this, that God already was and is and always will be. We know the writer of Genesis is trying to lay that foundation for us. But we're also beginning to understand that when God spoke, something dramatic began to happen. If I go back to these words at the beginning, it says formless and empty. Or we could say maybe better translation, formless and void. The Hebrew words are tohu and bohu. They represent like chaos and tumultuous things and kind of this primordial mess. Like before people, it was just chaos that existed in creation. By the way, if you're a Jewish, you'd like know all this stuff and be like, this. yeah, I know this. But we're probably not Jewish and so probably didn't know this. But, but this idea that in the chaos of creation, all these things, it's just kind of a mess out there. And the water, this idea of the deep, right? It says the deep and the spirit hovered over the waters. It's this idea that the water came from above and from below, and it was just, it was a mess. It was chaos. Have you ever seen video of massive ships in the ocean? Like, it doesn't matter how big they are, but when certain waves hit them and storms come, it doesn't matter how great they are, they cannot overcome the power of the ocean, right? This is the idea in the creation story that water is uncontrollable. It is untainable. And so God speaks into this in the midst of chaos that seems to reign in the world all around us. And maybe chaos even feels like it reigns in your own heart. You just feel like your life is chaotic. It's a picture we find all throughout the scriptures that the people of God feel like chaos exists. And God speaks into their lives, into moments, and it brings order where there seemed to be chaos. And this is what God desires to do for us. Over and over again, this is the story of God and his people. That in the chaos of our lives... He desires to speak, to bring order, to bring peace, to bring comfort. And so often we choose the chaos. We just keep choosing it again and again by how we live. But, but he wants for us to know what it looks like to know peace. And so maybe, just maybe, the Genesis 1 story is less about like a, a scientific treatise. And maybe more it's about a picture of the nature and the character of God. And if that's true, what's the point? That God brings order in the midst of chaos. That God speaks, the Ruach, the voice of God speaks. And things that seem to be out of order and disjointed, they begin to find order and they begin to be put in their proper places. And so God speaks and he says, let there be light. And then we see these days of creation happen. And so day one he says this, let there be light and dark, right? So God begins to separate things out. He begins to do this separating work, light and dark on day one. Day two, sea and sky. So sky and water, he separates out the waters, the chaos, the tumultuous stuff. He separates it out. On day three, he separates out dry land. So days one, two, and three, God does this separating work. You can go back and read Genesis 1 if you want. It's all there. On day four, he fills what he separated on day one. So day one, light and dark. Day four, he fills it with sun, moon, and stars. Right, you with me so far? Day two, he separates out sea and sky. Day five, he fills it with birds and fish. So what is separated on days one, two, and three correlates 
with days four, five, and six. So day three, he separates out dry land. Day six, he fills it with animals and people. And then day seven, we call Sabbath or blessing. So days one, two, and three, God separates. Days four, five, and six, God fills. And then day seven, God blesses. It's the picture of creation. It's the picture of the way God works. It's the picture of the character of God. It is who he is. He separates. Throughout the Bible, he separates out of people. He fills them with his unique presence. And just like the call of Abraham, he calls them to be a blessing to the world. So God separates. He fills and he sends back. And this is the picture, not just for themselves, but for others. For to go to end of chapter 1, verse 26, here's what we begin to find. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And did you catch the line from verse 26? In our image. It's not a typo in your Bible. In our image. From the beginning, God has functioned as Father, Son, and Spirit. This idea of Trinitarian nature of God. It is why John can write in his gospel, in the beginning was the word, the logos. From the beginning, God has been in relationship with himself in this way that he is three in one. This overflowing relationship of love. The ancients called it the divine dance. God in relationship with self, in relationship that you and I are invited into the divine dance of God to receive his love in such a way that it overflows into our lives. And so what is the picture of this Genesis 1 text to bring us back to John chapter 1? It's this, that God separates, he fills, and he blesses. And God is relational in himself, and the overflow of God's relational love is for you and I. It is what he desires to do to bless us and to fill us. This brings us back to the John text. And again, here's what John wrote. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This God, who is present in creation, the Logos who is divine, this is Jesus. And Jesus invites us to know our greatest identity, the greatest thing you and I can ever know is this. We can be God's children. The greatest identity we can find is not what we can do in athletics or in our professions or in anything else. The greatest identity we can know is we are beloved children of God and nothing can take away from that. Not the words of anyone else, not your greatest enemy. Nothing can take away from that, that you and I are called to be known as God's children. And again, maybe you're wondering how we're going to tie all this together. And maybe this is where your journal is somewhat helpful to write notes in. But here's what I want you and I to know. And this is what Jesus wants us to know all throughout the gospel. God loves you. God desperately loves you. 
And he wants your greatest identity to be known in this, that you can be his child above all things. But for some of us, what's really hard about that is he tells us that we call him what? Our father. Right? Some of us in this room, if we're honest, our dads aren't any good. They're poor dads. They weren't present, they weren't with us, they weren't near, they didn't do what dads are supposed to do. For others of us, like maybe we're a bad dad if we're honest, right? Whatever it might be, maybe you lost your dad, like whatever it is. We have pictures of dads in our heads that are not necessarily great. But what Jesus begins to do is he wants to paint a new picture of who God actually is. And he uses this phrase, our father. And it becomes hard for us to think about this because we struggle with this if we have not a great dad. See, there's no other religion in the world. There's no other, whether it be ancient or modern, there's no other thing that says, hey, there's a divine being who is creator, who loves you, and wants you to call him dad. That doesn't exist in anything else. But this brings me to a pretty important thing about God. Who we see when we think about God matters. Who we see when we think about God, it matters. It matters more than you can ever express it. Here's what I mean. Here's why it matters. Because if we have wrong pictures of God or incomplete pictures of God, then it messes up everything that comes to our faith. Or we teach really bad things about faith, either one. Right? So here's, here's a couple of bad examples about pictures of God that we sometimes hold on to. They sometimes defi- define us, right? If we think God is vengeful and angry and full of wrath, and he keeps like a scorecard, a tally sheet of like plus minus. Oh, you did one good thing. Oh, did a wrong thing. Oh, your wrong things outweigh your right things. So hell for you. If that's the picture we have of God, it's kind of tough, right? It's tough to think about our father. Or maybe the picture we have of God is like this idea of like a genie in a bottle. If I just say the right words and rub this genie, like I'll get exactly what I want. And so I'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? I, oh, didn't say the right words, I should try that again. Maybe I can get it the second time. Or like, you know, those magic eight balls, we shake it. Ooh, didn't get what I want. Let's try it again. It's bad pictures of God. Or maybe our picture of God is this, and we think he's like a cosmic counselor, right? Like counselors, by the way, are good things. I'm not knocking them in this moment. But, but we go to them when we think we need something, we need to process something. But when we've got our life kind of together, we quit going to the counselor. So I don't, I don't need the counselor right now, I'm good. But when I've got a problem again, I'll go back to God and say, God, will you help me? Because my life's kind of a mess again, and I need your help. And that's not who God is either. Or maybe we put, think, you know, like, because we laugh kind of at the vengeful, God, vengeful, wrathful God. But maybe we think God is all about our pleasure and our happiness, and we can do whatever we want. Right? Whatever feels good. Sleep with whoever you want. Do whatever you want sexually. It's all okay. God doesn't care. It's all good. Again, not a picture of who God is. In fact, it misses the covenantal nature of God. This is what John does for us. These are all bad pictures of God. But John paints a picture of who Jesus is. And Jesus paints for us a picture of who God is. Jesus gives us the image of God. We go back to in the beginning, the image we were created. We are created in the image of God. What does it mean for you and I? It means this, that the greatest thing we can come to know is God loves us, and with God's love, we can enter into such a place where we begin to look and to sound and to act and to live like Jesus in whose image we are created. And so I was thinking, how then can I help you picture how God sees you? 
uh, just this week, I wish I could tell you which night it was that I was thinking about the sermon, but I, I knocked on my daughter's door and um, had a question for her. I don't remember what it was. And look in, and there she was, like, just sitting on her bed. And I had this kind of overwhelming sense of love for her. And I sat and talked to her for just a couple minutes, and I don't remember what about, but, but I had just kind of like, there was this joy of just being in the presence of my daughter. That's true most of the time. She'd probably agree with that, too. Most of the time, there's joy being in her presence. Other times, we're scared of her. Um, but it just there was this joy being in her presence, and I just love her. This week, my son and I drove to a basketball game in the car. He was telling me some story about something. I don't even remember what, but it was just like, it was just fun to be with him and be near him and watch him experience something for the first time. It's just fun to do those kinds of things, right? I, there's just like a pleasure to being their dad. Also this week, there were a couple moments where I said, hey, um, you need to vacuum the floor. You need to empty the dishwasher. You need to pick up your stuff. It probably shocks you. My kids were not like, oh, thanks, Dad. I'd love to. I keep waiting for the day that it happens. I'm just pumped when they don't complain. Right? Like, that's a win for me as a dad. Like, hey, they just did it. We didn't even ask them that time. That was awesome. Right? And and I don't remember anything this week, but there are other times when I have to look at them and go, hey, um, we don't act that way. That behavior, that doesn't reflect love. That's not kind. That's not gracious. That's not who we are. That's not who we want you to become. Like, right, we want a better work ethic from that, from you. We want you to, to be better than that to other people. We don't want you to speak like that about others or to other people. Like, there's a way we live that we think leads to life, and that's not it. And so there's a corrective given as well. But here's what I will guarantee you today. If you were to ask my kids today if their dad loves them, I have no doubt they would say yes. Even on their worst day, in our worst day together, they would still say, I love them. God's love for you is so much greater than any love any parent has for a child. No matter how much I love my kids, God's love for you is greater than that. But here's the thing, because just like I love my kids, and sometimes there needs to be a correction in the way in which they live, because it's not leading to the fruitful life that I want for them. The same is true for you and I. There are things that we are doing in our lives that are not leading to the fruitful life that God longs for us to have. It's not leading us to the life that leads to life. In fact, it's leading us to other kinds of things. This brings us back why we started in the beginning, because sometimes God wants to separate those things out of our lives. They need to be withdrawn. They need to disappear. They need to no longer be a part of who we are. And so sometimes he may have to separate us even away from something or someone for a season of life. But he doesn't separate us out so we stay off by ourselves. He separates us out so he can fill us with his grace and with his love and with his very presence. So that we can be blessed to be a blessing to the world. And then... Just like John the Baptist who came to tell this story as a witness, we too become witnesses about the blessing of God in the world around us. This then brings us back to why John wrote this text. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What if for you and I, the best thing we can have this year, this new year, is to know we are God's children and we would submit our whole lives to him and he might do some separating work in us 
so that he can fill us so that we can be a blessing to the world. I don't know if you have ever decided to follow Jesus with your life. But it's more than like for me just being a fan of Chick-fil-A. It's a submission of everything that we are. It's a full surrender of all that we have. It's why we use the word disciple or apprentice, like someone to, to mirror our lives off Jesus, to follow him with everything we are. Anything less than that is not a disciple of Jesus. In other words, it's not a Christian. But he's inviting you and I to allow him to do this work in us and through us. The very logos, the very presence of God, the very truth of God, the very reason of God desires to know our deepest, darkest secrets and still love us. And desires for us to know him in such a way that we are welcomed into that. And so I don't know if you've ever decided to commit your life to Jesus, but what I believe is this, that in that we find life that leads but there are often things that hinder us and keep us from that and are hard for us to lean in because they're just robbing us of that. And so these words from Rich Viotis, who's a pastor and author in New York, he wrote this book called The Deeply Formed Life. And I think some of these words might be fitting for us today, so I thought I'd just read two pages to us today. A young German pastor writing from prison and nearing the end of his life asked a simple question that countless people have returned to, in his correspondence with his friends, he had been wrestling with many issues pertaining to the nature of religion, the rapidly changing world, and the witness of the church in a time when Adolf Hitler was destroying countless lives. With penetrating force, this young pastor stated, what is bothering me incessantly is the question, what Christianity really is, or indeed, who Christ really is for us today. This prophetic question was asked by German evangelical pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer in 1944. Today, we must ask an equally incisive question. Who are we, really, for Christ today? Both questions call us to seriously consider our lives, and honestly, the current state of things is not encouraging. We find ourselves in a world increasingly shaped by dangerous rhythms. Racial hostility, emotional immaturity, flippant sexuality, political idolatry, and individualistic consumerism, to name a few of the powers wreaking havoc in our lives and communities. We must ask, how can it be that those who call themselves Christians live at such a destructive pace that eliminates any semblance of abiding with Jesus in prayer? How can it be that those who identify as followers of Christ still hold deeply racist beliefs about others? How can it be that those who consider themselves disciples of Jesus live lives characterized by emotional dysfunction? How can it be that those who believe that God became a human lack serious integration when it comes to our bodies and our spirituality? How is it that those called to be the very presence of Jesus in the world live indistinguishably from the world? These questions are a clarion call reminding us that it is certainly possible to be deeply committed to identifying with the external trappings of Christianity while still living lives that are radically incongruent with life in the kingdom 
They tell us that it is certainly possible to be deeply committed to identifying with a shallow form of Christianity, but not be deeply formed by Christ. In just a moment, you and I are going to be invited to participate in an ancient practice we call communion, or the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Table. And it's one of those things we call a sacrament or an outward sign of an inward grace. This idea that when we come to this table, it is the graciousness of God that is extended to us, recognizing that it's nothing we can do on our own, but God comes to us, he pursues us. As we said earlier, he leaves the 99 and comes to us, the one, and says, hey, I want you to know you are deeply loved by me, but I know this. There are some things I need to separate from you. There's some things that have held you back that you've been holding on to tightly, right? Maybe it's the things that Rich Aviotis writes about. Maybe it really is a racism or a consumerism. Maybe it's some identity issues or dysfunction that exists in our life. Maybe it's those kinds of things. It's our sexuality, whatever it might be that we're holding on to so tightly. This is mine, and you can't have it. Our money, our political views, whatever it might be, like, you know, it's mine, God. You can't have it. Well, then what he says is this, then don't come to my table because you don't really want it. I long for you to come to this table. I long for you to come and know that I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. I want to separate these things from you because they are destroying your life. But I want to not just separate you, but I want to fill you with my very presence and my love and my grace and my mercy so you can know who you really are. So you can know the life that leads to life. So you can enter into a relationship with me in such a way that it changes everything. That everything else in life will feel like a counterfeit compared to that relationship. And sometimes we come to that table with kind of fear and trepidation and uncertainty. Because we think we've surrendered. And sometimes God just reminds us, hey, there's an area of your life you need to give to me. But when you and I come to that table, what he's saying to us is, I, it's all yours. It's a gift you've done nothing to earn, but will you trust everything to me or not? Will you give me all that you are? Will you give me even your identity? Will you find your greatest identity being my kids? Being my beloved son or daughter? This is a tangible action for us to go forward and receive the grace of God. It's God wanting to separate us out by the act of committing to follow him and come to his table and his God desiring to fill us with his grace so that we can be a blessing to the world around us, whether it's in our workplaces, in our homes, or in our schools, in our classrooms, or on our teams, whatever it might be, God wants us to be a blessing in those places. And so maybe for you and I, 2024 needs to be the year we surrender it all to him. We say, God, I am all in with you, and I want to follow you, and I want to come to know you. And literally, that is why we are going through the gospel of John, because John wants us to know Jesus. You know him in that way. Have you surrendered everything to him? See, it's the beautiful thing about the way God works. It's not that we have to have it all figured out and all perfect right in this moment, but it's his willingness to say, it's all yours. And this sacrament, this coming to the table, we do this. And one of the things that on the night Jesus would trade, he took the bread, he broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. In other words, I'm going to lay my life down for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, all of us have sin in our life. But here's the cool thing about God. 
He sees it, he knows it, but he's willing to forgive it and move on from it if we at least acknowledge it. And his grace extends to us so that we can be a people who are radically transformed. So this morning, I'm going to pray. And so we're going to come help the communion. We'll have three different stations that you can come to the table. Right? In fact, if you ever wonder why there's a little small bowl, it's because it's gluten-free. If you're gluten-free, take from that bowl. If you're not, don't. But we come to this table recognizing that we are invited to God's graciousness. He wants to separate us out to fill us and to bless us. Not, not because he's a bad dad. Because he's the best dad. I was trying to think how to articulate this, and I, I probably said this better in the first service at some level, but, but here's how I would say it. Um, I want to be a great dad to my kids. That doesn't mean I'm a great friend to them. The best parents aren't their best friends when your kids are growing up. I hope to have a friendship with my kids when they're older, but right now they need me to be their dad, not their friend. And for us, sometimes God wants to be just our dad, not our friend. I need to change us, but the hope is we enter into such a relationship that as we mature in that relationship, God becomes our best friend. That's what we long for. That's what, that's what, by the way, that's what every parenting book that's any good says. I want someday to be great friends with my kids, but I want to be their parent right now. And this is true of God. Maybe for you now, maybe it feels like kind of like a parent relationship right now, but it's because he loves us. But if we enter into that relationship, that he will help us enter into the relationship where he becomes the best friend we've ever known. And so this morning, as I pray and as those come, if you want to come to the table to receive the graciousness of God who says, I know where you are and I love you in spite of it. But the cool thing about who I am is I'm not going to leave you there. I want to fill you and bless you. Because in the beginning was God. He was there. In the beginning was Jesus. He was with God. He comes in flesh to say this, do you want to know how much I love you? And not even death itself could keep me from you. Come to my table, receive my grace, be my people. Know that you are my kids. Father, we ask today that you would help us to be the kind of people who have so committed our lives to you. That we would look and sound like your son Jesus. We'd recognize it's in his image that we have been created. That you would help us to be the kind of people who love, who offer mercy because we have received mercy and so the Father, this morning, help us as we come to this table to recognize you desire to transform us and change us, to shape us and to mold us to look like you. So maybe there's some area of our life we need to surrender to you. May we do that as we come to this table. We receive your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.